Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. I'm delighted to be joined by my heritage colleague, Klon Kitchen. Klon is a senior fellow for science, technology, and national security, and leads Heritage's tech policy. Prior to joining Heritage, Klon spent three years as the national security advisor to Senator Ben Sass, and more than 15 years as an intelligence officer in the United States intelligence community. Uh, and I would add that he has a really cool Ford F-150 truck uh, that he parks in the garage. R.F. Ali Khan is a senior fellow at the University of Chicago's Crime Lab and the former director of the Office of Constitutional Policy and Pol Policing at the Los Angeles Police Department. He served as an assistant United States attorney in the L.A. U.S. Attorney's Office, was deputy mayor for Homeland Security and Public Safety for the mayor of Los Angeles, as the assistant secretary for policy development at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, he advised two U.S. Attorneys General on cybercrime and intellectual property and is also a distinguished professor of Homeland Security and Counterterrorism at the National Defense University. Jamil Jaffer is the founder and executive director of the National Security Institute and assistant professor of law and director of the National Security Law and Policy Program at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University, uh, my alma mater where I used to teach. Jamil has extensive government and private sector experience, included, including but not limited to clerking for Judge Edith Jones and then Judge Neil Gorsuch, and later U.S. Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch. He worked at the Justice Department at the Office of Legal Policy, where he worked on the Roberts and Alito confirmations, in DOJ's National Security Division, in the White House under President George W. Bush as Associate Counsel to the President, and on the Hill as Chief Counsel and Senior Advisor on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He holds a BA from UCLA, an MA from the United States Naval War College, go Navy, and a JD from the University of Chicago. So with that, I'll take my seat here and start uh, our discussion. And let's, let's um, zoom way out. Uh, and and just start with the big picture, and then we'll sort of drill down on various uh, components of this discussion. And let me pitch first uh, Klon and RF, and then Jamil, I'll bring you into the discussion. Uh, generally, what do companies know about us, and how do they get that information, and what do they do with it? Uh, so first, thanks. Very glad to be here. I've also realized that I've been in D.C. long enough to where I've I know and have often worked with everybody I'm on a panel with going forward, and that's just disheartening. Um, it, it, look, the, the, the first question in terms of what do these companies know about us, <clears throat> quite a bit. Um, and they know it because we give it to them. That's how they know it. 
Um, and we, we give it to them in return for services and tools. And they're pretty great services and tools. They make life better. Uh, they allow us to uh, only see ads that we actually care about. I now no longer have to look at diaper ads. I don't have babies anymore. I, you know, I'm more interested in the L.L. Bean shoes. Um, but the interesting context for even understanding the, the, the volume of data that they're able to collect is, is what can be done with that volume of data. <clears throat> and the interesting thing about, well, actually all four of us, is we all have a, a tie to uh, intelligence and national security professionally. And what big data generally represents is a migration of the national security burden and capability into the private sector. So what we have always traditionally called intelligence, the ability to collect, understand, predict, and ultimately influence human behavior, we called that intelligence because we had clearances and that's what our mission was. Uh, on behalf of the United States National Security. Google calls that marketing. And they have come up with uh, an ability <clears throat> to, uh, to gain access to that information and to leverage that information in ways that are frankly novel and that in many ways surpass what the government has historically been able to do. And so there should be no one who uh, misunderstands just the power of this data and, and how it can be leveraged. That is not to impute the worst motives possible to any of that. It's important that we recognize that, again, this is a deal that consumers are making with these, these product providers. Uh, and for the most part, that breaks in our favor at the same time. Uh, it would also be, I think, wrong to believe that consumers are fully aware of the deal that they're making, or that we have properly secured ourselves as we have innovated. So I could go further, but I won't. But it's a, it's a big deal, and there's a lot there. Do you, do you read the disclaimer, those written by lawyers that are like 16 pages long before you click accept to jump on websites? So I'm the only non-lawyer on, on the dais at this point, so obviously no. I, no. Wouldn't re I wouldn't understand most of it if I did. Neither do we. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. RF, jump in here, and then I want to sure. turn to... Jamil. Sure. Well, first, thank you for having me coming from Los Angeles, which is literally on fire to a city that is sort of metaphorically on fire is quite the contrast. But it's great to be back in D.C. and especially with my former colleagues in two different positions, uh, one with NDU and then the Department of Justice. Um, if I can just sort of extend what Klon was talking about in terms of what does what does the private sector know about us? My, my focus in my career has mostly been in the government. And then the issue becomes, and, and qualitatively different question is, what does the government know about everybody? And it's certainly much less than what the private sector knows. In fact, what is the full scope of what the private sector knows is, is actually probably more classified than a lot of classified information. Um, but the difference is, is twofold in terms of what the government knows. One, uh, it obviously knows some information that is uh, very sensitive because there are collection methods or and information that the government can gather that just the private sector doesn't have access to, travel information in terms of what happens at the border, it could be satellite uh, information, those types of things, or just even things that a local police department would have access to, criminal investigative information or uh, federal <laughs> prosecutors. So that makes the, the issue of how much they know a little bit different because it's what they know that makes it more sensitive. Um, the, the other issue is that even though the government has a lot of information, um, and you would assume that they know all of those bits of information. They actually don't. 
in large part because that's not not having the capability to do the advanced analytics, the searches. And that could be as basic as a police department that goes in and seizes somebody's home computer and the capability to even look and see what's on that, um, that uh, MacBook Pro and the volume of information and the amount of resources necessary, all the way to the aggregate data that could be collected by an intelligence agency or collected on uh, automated license plate recognition. And that's a huge challenge because uh, unlike the private sector and the government, if the government has information that could have prevented somebody from being killed, the obligation, the responsibility is very different. And I think that's sometimes lost in the debate about what the government should be, should collect, should be able to do with the information that's collected. Because I think all of us here, and probably many of you have been in positions where we stay up, we are the people who stay up at night because we're concerned about what could happen, whether it's in an airport, whether it's the the country, whether it's the community that you're responsible for and its safety. And not having access and the ability to, to get to that information that could potentially prevent the death of people is a very weighty issue. So I think what the government knows has a very different qualitative sort of analysis to it than necessarily what the uh, private sector does. Yeah, no, I mean, I think I think Arif and Klan are exactly right. I mean, you think about it, the reason why Americans have this deep and abiding concern about government power is because that's where our framers came from, right? They came from a situation where the king had a huge amount of power uh, as against the people, and it's a power in large part that the government retains today, right, which is to say they have the power to uh, to compel you to do things, to, to seize you, to put you in jail, and to take away your life and liberty um, if they're able to do so. And so we jealously guard the right of the people, rightly so, against that ability of the government. They have the lawful monopoly on the use of force. Um, in, the, in the U.S., as a general matter, we don't think about constraining private actors the other way because we say, look, you're free to contract the way you want to. If you decide to make the deal with Google that they give you a free email account, and they give you access to a great search engine and great maps, and you give them all your data, well, then that's on you. And if you don't want to do that, you're free to use other services, DuckDuckGo or whatever they are, right, uh, that don't collect that data. And you can choose to do that too. That's your choice. Uh, in Europe, the situation is exactly flipped. In Europe, the view is, well, the government's benign, and the government can, there are very limited surveillance laws, so European governments regularly surveil their, their people uh, to the nth degree. Uh, but there are very strong protections against the private sector, what the private sector might do uh, with data that they collect. So the situation slipped on its head. We're now seeing in the United States a, a similar reaction because the Europeans are doing these things. We see things like in California, uh, the, this uh, CCPA, right, a law that sort of mirrors uh, the general data protection uh, regulations that the European Union is engaged in. Um, and the challenge there is as each state goes by and starts doing this, it starts to limit tech innovation, Right. Um, and what it does is it makes these tech companies say, well, look, if somebody's going to regulate us, right, we don't want 50 different state regulations, we would rather have the federal government do it. Well, now we've created a situation where you're creating additional federal roles, federal responsibilities in, a, in an area they typically haven't regulated in, uh, and an area, by the way, that's been hugely innovative in large part because the federal government hasn't regulated in. Um, and so you wonder to yourself, does this make sense from a typical American perspective when we think that individuals should be free to contract the way they want to. You don't have to use Gmail. The fact that you like having a gmail.com email address, that's on you, right? You can contract with plenty of other providers. You don't take that data. Uh, do we want the government in the business of saying what they can and can't do with the data that you choose to give them voluntarily? 
Um, as opposed to the government, who does have this lawful monopoly of the force, and we have the Fourth Amendment, we have these rules and concepts historically in our history for two, going back 200 years about what the government can and can't do uh, with data. Do any of you have a, a, a rebuttal or a comment about any other else's person? Go ahead, Klein. <clears throat> Not a rebuttal, but just actually a, a connection between uh, what, what has been shared. So I think one of the interesting follow-on questions about what does the private sector know about us and what does the government know about us so Jamil just made the excellent point that um, the government exercises a monopoly on the use of kind of coercion or violence. What's interesting, though, is that the government is essentially has, has lost its monopoly on intelligence. And that's happening at a time of a continuing and expanded threat, all kinds of them. All the bad things you can think about, they're still out there, and the government still needs to know what it, everything it can to prevent those bad things precisely because of what you said. It has a responsibility to protect. Well, so as that monopoly on intelligence has um, been lost on the government side, it is now looking to the private sector to find ways that it can cooperate with the private sector to fill that gap. And let me tell you, the private sector can fill that gap. I mean, it can gain greater insight at greater speed with more fidelity than the government has ever been able to do. And one of the questions that is provoked by how a free market society deals with that is a great example, I won't go into detail because it may come up later, but it's recently been talked about in the press that um, the Amazon Ring video doorbell, right? It's on the outside of your house, it's pointing outside, it's a great service for you as an individual. You can see who's at your door, you can, um, you know, all kinds of truly beneficial things from a consumer perspective on that. Well, it has been reported that local police departments are being given access to that data, including the imagery, by Amazon without the individual homeowners opting in. Well, okay, they're kind of pointing outside the house. It's kind of a public domain. What expectation of privacy do you have? Okay, so there's interesting questions, but then among the things that are also known are when I'm coming and going in, of my own, out of my, in and out of my own home. Well, how do I feel about that? And then also this idea of like, so now all of the imagery coming from this device and all of the kind of peripheral metadata that it's able to collect and correlate is now proactively, kind of presumptively, a part of the police investigation while I've not done anything wrong that would warrant my involvement in that investigation at all. But now it's a piece of derogatory information that can be used to exclude me that I was never part of it to begin with. So these are the, these are the kind of peculiarities that are being provoked as data continues to migrate and get bigger. Well, but of course, you've given Amazon access data. You chose to buy the Ring doorbell. Right. You chose to sign up with Amazon for their service where they store 30 days of data, right? <laughs> you've given them access to it, right? Now they have the data, and the government goes to them and says, here's a warrant. Here's a subpoena for that data, right? Now, Amazon has two choices. They could either uh, encrypt that data, make it unavailable to them. They're not going to do that. Why? Because they're using that data to, for business purposes, right? The same way Google's use that data for their own business purposes, just like Apple is, right? Let's say they do encrypt it, like Apple did with, the, with their iPhones. Yeah. Encrypt the data at rest, and they don't give the government any access. Now you have situations where there may be very important information, information on a crime about to be committed, a terrorist attack, right? A crime that was committed against your house by somebody else that you actually want access to the data. And, and Google or Amazon, or in this case, Apple says, well, you know, it's, we'd love to give you access to that data, government, but, you know, we encrypted it, we threw away the key. You know, we're not going to give you lawful access to it, even if you have a warrant, that's just not what we're in the business of doing. Well, the problem with that, of course, is the Fourth Amendment has never been a deal where you can't go into somebody's house and read their private diaries. That was not the deal our framers struck. 
the deal they struck was if you go to a federal judge, a neutral third-party magistrate, and you get a warrant based on probable cause, <coughs> you can go into Benjamin Franklin's house. You can go into his wife's underwear drawer, and you can read her private diary. That is the deal in America. Now, we may not like that deal. We might think, oh, you know, it's my iPhone. It has a lot of data about me. It's very private, right? That's not the deal. When you have a warrant, the government has the lawful authority to read that data. And so now you've got private companies making the decision, we're going to encrypt that data and not give the government access to it. And so now that Fourth Amendment bargain that we made 200 years ago and that's been durable and viable for the entire history of our nation, and by the way, has resulted in valuable benefits for privacy and for the security of the nation, is overturned by this sense that we have collectively that, oh, no, no, Benjamin Franklin's diary is different. My iPhone is really special. RF? Yeah, if I could just add to that, because I think um, Jamil makes a very important <laughs> point in, in terms of what the deal is with it when it comes to the Constitution. I think it's important to kind of maybe segregate out some of the information and what the government's role or ability to, to get. There's the Fourth Amendment standard, which is what is actually protected, what, where there's a reasonable expectation of privacy, which would require some sort of Fourth Amendment uh, threshold to make, which would require either search warrant or some other compulsory process for the government to have access to that information. So you have that. But then you also have sort of the that standard. But that's not always consistent, I think, with what community standards tend to be or expectations from the community because not the entire country, unfortunately, are not lawyers um, and have that sort of – so I'm constantly struck by, no, I have a right to privacy to this. But they're trying to equate that as some sort of constitutional right under the Fourth Amendment where just a basic reading of the Fourth Amendment, you realize that doesn't exist. Um, and I think that policy um, dimension has resulted in sort of this idea that there's some sort of uh, – you know, Chinese wall or, or some sort of break between what the, the public, the private sector can collect and what the government can even have access to, even if they put a full affidavit supported by reasonable, articulable facts showing probable cause that the crime has been committed or that there's evidence of a crime, and being able to compel um, a, a company, an Apple or, or some other, to provide that information, still an expectation, no, 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 that should be off limits. And it's interesting to see that evolution, that there's somehow some qualitative different now between your iPhone, as Jamil said, and Ben, Franklin, ben Franklin's diary. Um, what's driving that, it, I think, is an interesting question. But making that distinction is very important because the government is not allowed to just willy-nilly go and find out that information. There has to be, there is a process, a very robust process, I can say, personally from in the federal side. When they say don't make a federal case out of it, there's a lot to that because the amount of information you need to get and put together and get through an assistant U.S. attorney is pretty enormous to get a search warrant. Um, but this idea that, no, everything, else, everything should be off limits regardless because of this sort of expectation of privacy that doesn't exist under the law I think is where the concern comes from people who are trying to protect the country or trying to seek justice for victims of crimes. I'm going to ask you to put on your law professor hat in a minute, so get ready. Oh. And I'm going to have you explain pre-Carpenter yeah. what the third-party doctrine is okay. in English, okay. not law professor in English, <laughs> All right. and, and, and where it came from, why, why the court went the way they did, and then We'll talk about the Carpenter decision and in particular some of the dissents, yeah, sure. all right? But, Klein, you want to jump in here? And let me just throw this question out so when you're yep. done answering, all three of you can jump on this. Um, I've heard it said that today 
corporations are a bigger threat to our privacy than the government. Agree or disagree? And then go ahead and dump into what you wanted to. Uh, I hurt your head there, Klon. But uh, yeah, just yeah, but with caveats. Um, so uh, the, the the difference is, um, or what makes this discussion particularly difficult is that the insights that you can gain by reviewing someone's iPhone are qualitatively different than what insights you gain from reviewing Mrs. Franklin's diary. Really? Well, just, yeah, for example. So it's not, with Mrs. Franklin's diary, I get to learn maybe that her she went and had tea. darkest secrets. Well, her feelings about, you know, the sunset that she saw. Okay, fine. And that she had tea with such and such. That's fine. I'm, I, I don't, I'm not trying to minimize. I'm, I'm not actually mounting a defense for anyone. I'm simply saying that, well, let me just draw an example. Um, without ever knowing your name, um, a let's let's choose a non-tech company. Let's just talk about a communications carrier, a phone company. They know that the number associated with with this handset, with this phone, every time it most times of the year is co-located with with this handset and and this phone at this address. A man and his wife. Every evening, typically by seven p.m., these phones are co-located. Well, when one of those phones. On, goes on its monthly trip to California, the other phone goes to this address over here where we actually know who that phone is and it's co-located with this other phone. And those two phones are only co-located when this phone is in California. Okay, no names are known or discussed, but that is an insight into the life pattern of at least three different people. And that didn't have to get into content. That wasn't reading anybody's email. That wasn't reading anybody's, right? It's just simply a metadata fact pattern whose implication is pretty easy to draw, right? So that's an, that is an example. So what we're talking about is not inconsequential. Now, there's no reason to believe that that communications company has any vested interest in doing anything with that, right? But when you begin to ask the question about, um, so like how government gets to access that information. So it's not that um, that poli local police departments are serving warrants to Amazon Ring and getting it. I, I believe if a lawful warrant is served and you can produce the information, you ought to produce the information. That's the deal. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is Amazon actually providing a paid service to these police departments and then training local police departments so that when they respond to break-in calls, they can proactively essentially sell Amazon Ring services to people as a, as a kind of a security mechanism. And at that point, the user hasn't specifically opted into being a part of that, well, I'll take that back, legally they have opted in by signing the terms of agreement or the terms of service, but it's rare that they understand that they've done that. Now, all of that may actually be the right way this should go. My point is, is that the level of nuance and sophistication of this conversation far exceed the majority of the conversations about this as they've been happening. Oh, there's so much there. I mean, there's so much there. So let's just start with that, with the Amazon, where, where Klon ended on, the, on this Amazon ring doorbell. Does anybody dispute that the police department or the locality could put a, a camera on a, on a light post outside your house and watch everybody that comes in and out of your house, and there will be nothing illegal about that. 
No Fourth Amendment requirement. No question about it. They could just do that. It's true, right? A lot of cities, London, right, is a good example. A lot of cities in America have shot cams, right, where they listen for sounds of gunfire. They have video cameras, right? They record everything happening on the public streets. Why? Because the Fourth Amendment doesn't protect what happens on a public street or outside of your house. It might protect the curtilage of your house, right? But it doesn't protect the streets in front of your house. It doesn't protect who's driving by, right? And if a ring camera is picking that up, right, why not go to a private party and buy that data feed from them? The government could have put a camera out there. Why put a camera out and spend your tax dollars when somebody else has a camera that's already there? Now, you might say, well, the user didn't opt into the service. Well, they certainly opted into Amazon having that data. Now Amazon has it. Amazon can do what it wants with it. You, by the way, can restrict their rights. You can go to a company that doesn't market your data to police departments. You can go to this secure you know, ring doorbell service who doesn't do that. You have a choice as a consumer. The fact that you made a bad choice, the fact that you decide to use Gmail and you know they sell all your data, the fact that you still use Facebook after you know they sell your data, that's on you, right? Conservatives and libertarians believe that's your decision to make. They don't believe that the government should come in with some heavy-handed law to tell you how to behave in your private life and decide who you sell your services to, right? Now, on this question about, you know, what the government knows about you and the fact that it's qualitatively different, right? Now we know these phones are co-located, so we know that Ben Franklin's wife is having an affair with Thomas Jefferson or whatever it might be, right? Um, Look, if you have access to her diary, right, or his diary, what do you think he might be writing in there? Maybe about the affair that he's having, right? Now, Klon says, well, that's different. That's content. You need a warrant for that. This is metadata. Maybe it's different. What about the flip side of metadata? The fact that knowing that this person is always here at this address, knowing that you don't have to get a warrant on them because they're not one of your subjects. The fact that you could do that without knowing their name, all you have is their phone number. More often than not, metadata allows you a very privacy-friendly way to eliminate people for an investigation, not include them. Right? That's the biggest benefit of metadata for the government is excluding a bunch of people you might have to go get warrants on. Right? There are hugely privacy-enhancing benefits of allowing the government to have access to non-content data to prevent them from going to get content data. But the conversation generally tells me, well, what about these parade of horribles that might happen, right? We look at all these massive metadata programs. Everyone's oh, so concerned about the government's 215 program. There is not That's one the telephone metadata, the telephone metadata program. Yeah. There is not one demonstrated example in 15 years of that program being around of the government conducting illegal searches of that data. There were mistakes made, yes. Errors, overcollection, over-searching, people made errors. Not one example of an intentional misuse in 15 years. And yet we have these parade of horribles of what might happen if the government, we know private industry is doing that, and yet we give that data to them blithely and think, oh, well, you know, now, now we should have the federal government come in and regulate how I use my data. Hey, can I ask a question, though, because uh, I think the point you make about when you are deciding to use Gmail, for example, you're giving your data, they're going to use it, et cetera. But what if you make that contract with some service, yeah. and at the time they're not using it in a way that you could have reasonably anticipated? For example, Ring. Um, the idea that you put on Ring and now, um, or not Ring, but any camera that you put in, that some company is now going to provide that information, maybe not to the government, but to some other um, company or those types of things, and not having the ability to opt out um, of that. I mean, how do you, how do you address that? Well, yeah, question? I mean, let's, let's just poll the audience. Does everybody here know that Google is selling your data? Anybody, anybody, anybody who doesn't know that? Maybe, maybe, this is, maybe this is an expert audience because they came to a surveillance thing, right? Mm-hmm. But I bet you if you ask the average American in Ohio, 
right, or in or in Kentucky, right? Whether they're whether they think Google's selling their data, they know. Nobody's confused about that. Nobody's confused, by the way, that Alexa is listening at all times. <laughs> Why? Because when you say Alexa, she wakes up. Even sometimes you don't say Alexa and she wakes up. Anybody confused that Siri is listening to you at all times? No. You want Siri to be listening. Now, you might be surprised to know that Siri is recording your voice when you don't expect it to be, when you don't say Siri, and they're doing it for training, and they're trying to make Siri better or make Alexa better. That might be concerning. And you know what? You have a remedy. You can turn it off. Or you can stop buying that Siri product or Alexa product. How many people have turned them off after they heard that Alexa was listening? How many of you guys turned off your Alexa devices? No one. You know why? Oh, so uh, a couple uh, of you. All right, good. Okay, so a couple of you. All right. So your privacy, you're concerned about that, right? We all could do that. I have six Alexa devices in my house. I am blithely comfortable with the fact that they're listening to me and that they're improving their services to me based on some content. I don't love it, but I know. And maybe I'm an informed consumer, but I bet you everybody knows we just like the deal. Mm-hmm. I, I guess what I'm getting it's to is not though, a market that- failure. Well, I do think, though, that we, you know, technology is advancing so, so rapidly. And also how companies are deciding to use data, the, their capabilities to use that data. And also you would have to know that the company is using it in this different way. And in the example you gave about what it was used for marketing, my understanding was that was sort of a leak. It wasn't on Amazon right. affirmatively going out. So how does a consumer know it's going to be used for that? I no, think that's I, where the rub comes. Listen, I get it. I get it. We're all, you know, we need the government to protect us against, uh, against these big corporations. They're so evil. Collecting all this data. We have no idea what's happening with it. Look, if that's the concern, okay, let's make them, let's make them disclose what they do. Great. It's not a justification for saying you can't do X, you can't do Y, you can't privately contract. Disclosure, I'll buy that. I don't believe people are as stupid as everyone seems to think that we don't know that the corporations are using our data, right? Yes, there are examples where it's beyond what you might reasonably expect, right? And disclosure can solve that problem. Well, that's not what we see happening around in, in, in Europe. It's not what we see happening in California. Instead, we have, we have sort of the heavy hand of the government coming and saying, you consumer, you're not smart enough to understand what you're doing with your data. We will protect you. You're not smart enough. We'll help you figure it out. So, we'll solve the problem for you. We will stop these big, bad corporations from using your data against you. So I won't deny that some people make that argument. But, I mean, we're at the Heritage Foundation. No one's making that argument. So, you know, kind of the slapping around of the big government straw man, you know, fine. But, but There my are po- a lot of conservatives who think CCPA and GDPR are a great idea. Well, okay, none of them are here. And, and my, my bigger point – my bigger point is actually the way these terms of services are written is not to where they actually itemize in detail how they use the, the data. What they actually say is, <clears throat> quite frankly, this is our data, and you're agreeing to let us use this however we see fit. And they specifically have a future tense uh, requirement that says, and that means anything that we're currently not doing that we might do in the future. Now, it says it there in plain and black and white. We all agree to it. I'm not absolving any consumer of any responsibility. But ah no no, but the free market system that you're describing and that I ascribe to does depend on an informed consumer, right? And so the question becomes not is Amazon inherently evil for doing this? Yeah. The question becomes like okay, so what does it look like to have an ongoing informed dialogue? between consumers and providers and the government as these capabilities become as powerful as they are. Let's, let's take this to the next step, which is the uh, thing we talked about that we want to include in our conversation. You wear your Fitbit, 
or you want to figure out where from Tanzania your family comes from. So you Thank the, you for you, that. You do the 23andMe, all right? And you submit <laughs> your 23andMe or whatever the DNA thing is. Uh, your Fitbit uh, information goes to Fitbit, and they sell it to your insurance company. Uh, your 23andMe somehow gets to Cigna, gets to Blue Cross Blue Shield, and they decide, oh, Click Kitchen, you look healthy, uh, but we saw that DNA, and uh, you, you're going to pay 4000 a month for your insurance because you're not as healthy as you think you are. Right. Well, I mean, isn't that one of the many nightmares type scenarios? I mean, none of us is comfortable with that, right? Uh, but is it that different? I mean, right. you go to Choice Point today, and they have they have every address you've ever lived. They have your social security number. They they put a little couple of stars there in front of it, so you don't see the whole thing, right? They know uh, every. Uh, they have people that are associated with you, right? You can if you Google your name, you'll see all these people that are associated with you, all the addresses you've ever lived at, all the cars you've ever owned, right? So yeah, this adds something. Your DNA, right? It now it adds your um, your uh, your what was the other one? Was it an example you gave? Fitbit. Your Fitbit information, right? But it's not something that's so different than's happened historically. We have made the decision as a country that we're okay with private corporations doing that. Now we may decide to overturn that 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 deal, and I'm there are not good reasons, as Klon points out, to say okay, people should disclose, right? In the consumer credit context, <laughs> we have very detailed things about what credit credit agencies have to disclose to you about what they do. How many of you all have read those FCRA reports that the Congress, the Congress has mandated? Okay, one person, right? <laughs> and this is a two people, and this is a privacy enhanced audience, mm-hmm. right? I am a privacy enhanced person. I haven't read them. I know roughly what they are, so fine, right? But let's be real. I'm not saying I'm against disclosure. I think disclosure would be great, but the vast majority, and by the way, I mean a lot of conservatives in Congress, right? Read Rand Paul, Mike Lee, right? And 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 uh, frankly, the majority of Republicans in the House think that that's not enough. They would regulate industry. And you see this coming together of liberals, right? The Elizabeth Warrens on one hand, right? And the, and the, the Mike Lees on the other coming together. And, and Rand Paul saying, you know what? That Google, that Facebook, hmm, maybe we need some antitrust rules. I mean, yeah, the, yeah there's no evidence that they're, that they're crushing competition or engaging in manipulative market behavior. But, you know, they're really big. They have a lot of data. Maybe we got to break them up. Despite all the technology innovation that we've gained and the huge benefits for the economy and for our for our for our, in, our role in the world, meh, too big to succeed. I, I think, though, in terms of what the community or, or the public's expectations are, I'm not sure. I, I mean, I don't think anybody's really characterizing, or I certainly am not characterizing that the people are too uh, inept or dumb to recognize what uh, what is being done with their data, but. I don't think they have the time or effort necessary to figure out what are the implications of it. I mean, how many of us here have put our DNA up on 23andMe or Ancestry and really understand the implications of it? You know, it's marketed as a way, oh, look what you can do. You can find out what your history is and who you might be related to. But then all of a sudden, you know, uh, a serial killer investigation uses one of the services to identify a murderer through the use of a DNA of a relative. And now, all of a sudden, people are realizing, wait a second, I had never thought about that. It sounds great to me, right? Well, but there, I think there's, they're both, they're, they're, they're reasonable uh, disagreements about whether that's good or not. I, I tend to be on your side, but I do think there's some legitimate things. Because people think, and in that situation, it's very interesting, because even for those of you who have not uploaded your DNA to any of these services, your DNA is probably up there. 
because your father, your mother, your relative, we all share DNA. Um, so what are the implications from that, and how many people truly recognize that? Some may care, some may not, but I think that is a reasonable uh, thing to think through and figure out what is the balance. We tend to go from one... I'm sure we'll get to questions. I mean, I think I've been subjected to it, and I'd like to know who's behind it. Sure, and I think there are a lot of and different covert, technologies. Covert surveillance and harassment of people. There was an ad in the Express in 2013. I brought a copy, by the way. I wanted to get one. And we'll get to the questions Everybody. later. I appreciate your passion. I don't know if they gave it to you. Ma'am? Because you seem to be protesting. There is a Patriot Act that allows it. And I don't mind, you know, my DNA. They've taken my head uh, radio scan and everything. That's okay. But I'd like to know for what reason and, you know, if they're trying to maybe even chop my head off. <laughs> Thank God that hasn't happened, right? And I'm happy that it hasn't, and it probably won't because you can speak up in America. And are, are you finished? Or are you finished? So I think you should address that, and I hope they give you that copy, that advertising that was in the press about... You know, it was some kind of organization called the Freedom from Overt Harassment and Surveillance of People. Ma'am, I'm going to ask you to stop. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay. You're, you seem to be protecting, you know, I don't know. We will get to the Q&A. Zuckerberg was answering, uh, uh, you know, to Congress on the subject yesterday, I think it was. There was a, a lot said, 45 million, what's it called? Did you give me that copy that I... Okay, well, so go I'm ahead. Okay, yeah. You're here, you know, you're the people that are... are yeah, I, I think it's... Go ahead. I think it's important to okay. recognize where is the balance, where is the balance between all of these issues that are being brought up. Go ahead. Just talk. Look, I mean, I think I think certainly um, there is a sense uh, among the public that uh, the government's engaged in inappropriate activities, right? And and this is a this is a theme, right, that has been stoked, I think, in part um, by uh, by what Arf said, which is that uh, we we believe that we have this free ranging right to privacy, right? That's not in the Constitution, it's not in the text, um, it's not um, it's not in federal statutes, right? And I think part of where that comes from is um, you know when courts uh, engage in in behaviors where they say. We're going to go find things in penumbras. We're going to take this amendment and that amendment and this amendment, and we're going to we're going to blend them together and say there's this free ranging right of privacy. Right? Um, this is something that's happened over time with our courts, um, and frankly, legislators encourage this uh, by by passing laws that are not clear and not specific, where they want the courts to sort of take free reign and run around with federal statutes and and sort of interpret them in ways that 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 they didn't write the statute. And so, so I think it's really important that when we want, if we want people. Uh, to understand what the law is, right, and really understand what their rights are, there's a way to do that. It, it involves Congress, right, writing laws that are clear and simple. It involves courts not getting the business of roaming around, finding rights that aren't there, finding things that aren't in, aren't in the text of the statute, right, and doing their job, which is enforcing the law and the Constitution as written, not on some free-ranging exercise of penumbras well, and let, let's, let's go back to a pre-Carpenter world and just asking you to put your law professor hat on just for a moment, talk about the broad uh, sweep of the third-party doctrine. What yeah. did it mean, and how, if at all, does Carpenter change yeah. that? So the third-party doctrine uh, comes out of two cases, a case involving um, an effort by the government to get access to uh, somebody's dialed numbers, right? It was this guy who was 
harassing this woman. He's making harassing phone calls to a woman. It wasn't a very smart criminal. He would drive by her house slowly after calling her and say, I'm watching you. And then he'd drive by her house and she wrote down his license plate. So uh, the cops rolled him up. Um, but they before they did that, they um, they got the, the phone company to give him his dialed numbers. And sure enough, at the time she said he was calling, there was his phone number. Um, and so they went to his house. They executed a warrant based on this information they got voluntarily from the phone company. Um, and they found a phone book with with the page of her phone number dog-eared, um, you know, like we used to do back in the old days, right? Fold down the page. Um, and so uh, so this wasn't the smartest criminal. Another similar case uh, involving third-party doctrine involved uh, efforts to go to a bank and find out what amount of money was in, was in, the, was in the bank account. Um, and they went to the bank and didn't have a warrant and got the data. Um, and in both cases, the court said that was okay because the data was not the individual's. The data had been given to this third party, the phone company in one instance, the bank in the other, right? Um, and that the third parties owned the data, and the government was it was okay for the government to go to them without a warrant and say, hey, if you want to voluntarily give me your data, that's okay. And you know what happened with those cases? It wasn't, oh, my God, the end of privacy. In fact, to the contrary, Congress passed two laws, the Right to Financial Privacy Act, which protected your bank accounts from that type of government intervention, right? And the, and, and, um, and the uh, Title III, right, the surveillance laws, that prohibit the government from getting certain kinds of data without, without, um, without, uh, without a warrant. All right? And yes, they, there were different rules they set in, but, they, but Congress acted, and they filled that gap and protected privacy at the level they thought was appropriate. We didn't need courts ranging around and free-roaming and figuring out whose who's rules. Well, now, fast forward to the Internet era, right? Uh, we have iPhones with all this data and, and the exact concerns that Claw raised. Well, you know, if you have your phone, it's got all your information, it also knows where you are. It might be listening to you. You combine all this data, and people became concerned. Oh, well, you know, the government might make this mosaic of everything I'm doing if they just get access to my iPhone. And so you have uh, cases coming out of the Supreme Court, Riley coming out of California, and Carpenter uh, coming out of, I think it was Maryland, right? And the Supreme Court identifying sort of an exception to the old third-party doctrine. Well, iPhones are different. They're special. And, uh, and, you know, all this data is being collected, so we're going to treat them differently than we treat the normal scenario. We don't know really what the rules are. The third-party doctrine is still alive, but it's, it's not as strong when it comes to this very scary thing of the iPhone, right? Congress can't figure this out. We, the Supreme Court, can figure it out for you, um, and we'll solve this problem. We'll, we'll change the Constitution so that we can make up for this thing that people don't understand and the court, Congress can't fix. RF. Well, I think what's important to recognize in the examples that uh, Jamil very, uh, in a well-spoken way, articulated is that even though people may not have gone crazy with these court rulings, there was a policy discussion in the public debate about, well, should Congress step in to deal with that concern? And they did through the acts that you talked about, through the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, which was that issue in the Carpenter decision, because in that case, uh, the law enforcement authorities, the FBI in that case, actually went and got a court order to get the records that were being held by a third party. Um, that's not constitutionally required. That was something that Congress, as a matter of policy, thought that they needed to fill that gap. Now, the standard's not the same as the Fourth Amendment because it wouldn't make sense to make it the same standard if it's not the Fourth Amendment standard at the time. But there is a, a legitimate reason for a government entity to, to legislate and maybe come up with some sort of reasonable scheme in order to add some protections, because that's the, that is the expectation of society. Um, I'm not saying that Carpenter was the right way to go as a matter of public policy, but I also uh, don't think that Congress or legislature should completely ignore it and only use the 
constitutional standard as the basis of when the government might have to get some compulsory process to produce this information. Juan, let's take this OCONUS. Yeah. Okay, let's take this outside the continental United States. Um, we obviously have an interest, like any sovereign country, in protecting our national security. Uh, the Constitution, they say, stops at the water's edge, yep. uh, in theory. Um, Unless it's Guantanamo Bay, and then it stops at the edge of the island, at least, and at it goes least, to foreigners. At least insofar as, as it goes to non-Americans, non-citizens. Where do you stand on that issue? Yeah. Uh, and um, talk us through, generally, uh, your thoughts on, on, on this as it relates to national security issues. <coughs> yeah, so that's actually one of the key kind of complicating complicating factors. So I'm personally not overly concerned at this moment about the federal government abusing my data. That, that is not the thing that keeps me up at night. Um, I'm also not particularly concerned about corporations abusing that data. Um, I'm not too worried about what's happening within the borders of the United States. That's just not something I'm spending a lot of time concerned about. Um, what I am, what I'm concerned about. We'll get there, ma'am. What I'm concerned about. What I'm concerned about is um, the foreign threat and capacity to leverage all of that. Mm -hmm. um, and so, one of the reasons why the United words around that right yeah, there. Yeah. So, one of the reasons why the United States is having the conversation that it is currently about uh, the development of fifth generation wireless networks, five G and uh, not allowing, the, the administration has made a decision that there will not be a substantial Chinese presence within that network, is precisely, because, is precisely because of the way those networks work, right? So what previously were physical barriers between portions of the network are now software-defined, which means they're permeable and the security inherent uh, is, is, is difficult to manage. So if there's a significant foreign presence on that network, we no longer have the level of um, assurity that we can kind of isolate piece, key pieces of data. This is just one example. Okay, well, if all of these, the, the fifth generation wireless technology, you should understand that it's not just faster phones, it's essentially the central nervous system of the new economy. And so this is going to be where the Googles and the Amazons and all of us are connecting. Well, if information on those networks are inherently less secure, or at least at greater risk, that's a national security concern, not just a privacy concern. And so... We can talk about, you know, whether a company should or should not adopt processes where they just don't have the information anymore. I mean, in part, that's a, that's a response to consumer demand. That's actually the market creating something. But then more broadly, we have to understand that this is a conversation where the federal government has a very real place at the table. And it's not necessarily in an effort to kind of constrain or direct the domestic economy. It's actually meeting its constitutional duties to provide for the common defense. And in an increasingly networked environment and world where data is the lifeblood of the economy and of just modern life, that's getting more difficult and the stakes are higher. I want to give either of you a quick saved round and then I want to ask about the connection between big corporations and the government with respect to national security, and then I want to open it up to questions. Any other comments to Klon's comment? I, I think I, I would just say I agree 100 um, percent. The threats that come internationally, not just to the United States, but globally, I mean, we have a global information network, are an incredibly great concern, and precisely for the national security, for all the privacy issues we're talking about. And our ability to protect against that is, is something that we absolutely need to think about more and act on more. 
I agree 100% with Arif and Claude. Okay. So I want, when we open <coughs> up to questions, I want to do, in the interest of time, I want to take two questions at once uh, and then have you pick up whatever part of the question. And remember that this lady had a legitimate question as well, which I think you've asked quite well, So, and we've heard you. So I want you to fold any answers to her questions in as well. So if you just raise your hand, and I'd ask a, a personal favor. Uh, tell us your name, and then ask a question with a question mark at the end. Uh, as opposed to a statement. And that would be terrific. Uh, so go ahead and raise your hands. Who has questions? All right. This gentleman with the pen. Anyone else? All right. We'll start with this gentleman here. Go ahead. Uh, so far, use the microphone, please, because we're streaming. Just tell us your okay. name and your question. Sorry. So far, your guys' discussion has mostly focused on consumers and products, and I think I would agree when what I think it's what most of you believe that private ownership of massive data sets usually benefits consumers. But I feel like we're missing something when it comes to companies like Cambridge Analytica and the ability of that private ownership to influence elections, which has national security implications, domestic policy implications. So I wanted to ask you guys how your opinions on that private ownership changes when it comes to political uh, implications. All right. And I know you have a question that's a sentence long with a question mark at the end. And I'm going to hold on. Let, let me get you the microphone so that our uh, audience online can hear you. Uh, Lucas, if you give her a question. And please try to make it short. We've heard your ideas, which are terrific. Just so my name, is, my name is Marianne Lissenko. I'm on Twitter, Listen to Mary. Uh, Mary Listen, you know, Listen, Lissenko. So um, and your question one is, of my questions is, what is meta? What does the meta stand for in metadata? Great. So, yeah, okay. that's, a, that's a great question. I um, mean, you know, there's metaphors, metaphysical. So I'm wondering, maybe... Maybe there is some kind of metaphysical okay, energy that is affecting yeah. people, myself included, sure. because my, um, my, all my communications for the last 16, even though going back to Canada about 20 years, have been obstructed, and I have felt some kind of harassment. Petty, usually petty, but, you know. Now, Marianne, you got to work with me here. It is Get uncomfortable. The there you go. Okay, go ahead. So... Two questions out on the yeah. open. So this is a great question. What is what is metadata, right? So metadata, and the term meta in front of the word data means it's data about data, right? So it's it's information about data, right? So if you think about uh, a phone call, right, the metadata of a phone call is the phone number dialed, the phone number that was dialing from, the date, time, and duration of the call. It's information about the call. It's not content. In an email, it would be the to from address in the email, the date, time, uh, and maybe even the length of the internal email. None of the content, none of the words, none of the subject matter, right? Just the, the data about the data. So that's what metadata is. Um, and then uh, as the other gentleman's question about Cambridge Analytica and the question about the potential of commercial data being sold to somebody else who then uses it in a way that might affect national security or might affect elections and thereby affect national security. That's a great question, right? And, and I think the answer to that is, right, how are we deciding what is appropriate and not appropriate for private companies to collect, right, and then utilize? There's a lot of ways you could think about that. You could imagine a world in which you said you can't collect this data. You might say you can't use the data in the following way. You might say you can't use it to be sold for these purposes, right? You might say on the back end of the data, even if you can sell it and can use it, 
that the person who has the data can't use it in a way that influences a federal election or if they're a foreign, if they're a foreign entity, right, they can't use it, right? But the other question is, is think about data that's been historically collected in that way, right? Polling data, yeah. data about voter voting patterns, right? When you go to the voting booth, right, and you register to vote, right, your voter registration, your name, your phone number, your address, and your party <coughs> registration is made public. Anyone can go walk into the county board of elections and buy that data, right? Do we think that's appropriate? We know that candidates use it all the time. Uh, they can't use it to raise money. We've restricted that. But they can use it to decide whether to call your house. And in fact, a lot of, a lot of people during elections, right, every campaign cycle I go out and do work on elections, right, I have a little app on my phone. And for Republicans, it's called Red Dialer, right? And you figure out, okay, you know, do, do I go to this house? Is this a Democrat house or a Republican house? How many times have they voted in the last election? What's the name of the person? What's their age? What's their, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of information. That's based on historically, for 200 years, we collect that data, made it available. You used to have to go buy it in big stacks of printed out data, right? Now you can get it on your phone in an app. But is that that much different than Cambridge Analytica? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Well, even on that, so the the problem the 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 public concern about Cambridge Analytica wasn't what they did with the information is how they acquired the information so that was what people were 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 frustrated about so there's not a presidential campaign going right now there's not a political campaign going on right now that isn't trying to do exactly the same type of of analytic effort that Cambridge Analytica was offering right so and and there's not there's not a marketing campaign there's not a a bottle of soda that's not trying to be sold to you using the exact same type of analytic capability. So the, just, to, just to be clear, the, the Cambridge Analytica is kind of a throwaway notion. The problem was fundamentally how they acquired the information that they, that they had, right? But that's what Facebook sells. Facebook, Google, all, like, this is what they sell, right? They, they, they don't sell social networks. They sell audience insight for marketing. And I don't begrudge them that. But let's just be clear what we're talking about. Right, and so the ability to influence populations, yeah, we're all in that game now. I think, though, this comes down to the basic sort of analytical question of, uh, you know, are we concerned that big companies, big big data by private sector, you know, first they they get qualitatively different types of information the government. But I do think there's legitimate concern of what they are allowed and not allowed to do with it, whether it's Cambridge Analytica or anybody else. And right now, there are really no restrictions on that, very limited. The government's very different because the nature of the information they can get is highly sensitive, and a lot of it cannot be accessed by the private sector. But on the other hand, there are very strict regulations on what they can do about it, whether they can disclose it, how they can use it. Um, all of us have been in the national security world, and I'll tell you one of the biggest challenges to information sharing, which is so important post 9-11, is because of all those restrictions on data being able to be shared. Rightfully so, because it is very sensitive. But um, I think that's the biggest difference between data collection and the use of data in the government versus the private sector. And there are legitimate concerns about what they can do with it. And are there lines in which we as a society say you can't use it for these things, whether they're the things that Jamil suggested or Kwan? We have time for one more question. This lady over here, just wait for the microphone, please. <coughs> so um, in D.C. here we have this phenomenon of like speed cameras and these are constantly sort of like taking pictures of cars as they go by and it does seem to me that this creates a kind of due process problem because um, it recently happened in my family that one person was driving down here a car belonging to someone else it registered in another state and that person was not even in the district 
thought the car was going too fast, and the person in the other state got the, the ticket. Now, normally in, in court, if, if you challenge a speeding ticket, the, you, you go in and the cop has to point you to you and say, that person is the person to whom I gave the ticket. They were the person who was speeding. But now the camera takes the picture. Someone gets a ticket. There's no way to challenge it, but you're not proving that that was the person who actually did the alleged crime. If I could respond to that, I could just tell you from the experience of being in Los Angeles where we've had this and the evolution of it. Speed, you know, cameras came in um, in Los Angeles because we have a lot of traffic fatalities in major intersections. LA is a car-based culture, et cetera. Um, one of the pitches from the private sector on it was it will pay for itself because of the revenue you will get from the violations. Um, and so that was the reason why many governments continued to do this. And this is an interesting cross-section of privacy and commercial uh, and financial uh, motivations. Uh, so when it was initially enacted, um, people thought, oh, this is good, except when it started sending pictures of the drivers and the passengers. And a few times, the driver was with a passenger that maybe the spouse did not approve of. Um, and that became a big controversy, including when a state senator had that problem. So of course, <laughs> then there was a law that said, no, you can only show the driver. Well, then the driver was being shown. And then what was happening is cities were not getting the revenue that they wanted. And I recall sitting at a city council meeting with the LA Police Department where a council member was excoriating the assistant chief about why it wasn't getting the revenue to pay for itself. And she was trying to answer in a very respectful way of that's not why we give citations. And then I chimed in and said maybe because it's working um, and people are not driving faster through these things. But then it switched to a due process issue and now it's basically been uh, in many cities been gone. But it's a good example of sort of the commercial aspect the privacy aspect, the public safety aspect, and how they often kind of merge all together. Yeah, and it's, it's actually funny. Uh, you know, a lot of cities have stopped doing traffic cameras for the very reason you lay out. People have gotten, constituents have gotten upset and said, this is not right. You shouldn't be ticketing me. I mean, a lot of times if you challenge one of those traffic tickets, they'll just, they'll just wave the fine because they don't want to put up with the fight about it. Um, I'll tell you an interesting story, though. So I was, uh, you know, I, I, I teach in the summertime with Justice Gorsuch in Italy, um, and apparently... I, I, so I rented a car one weekend. I got seven, seven Italian traffic camera tickets um, in, in like a three-hour drive. Uh, and I was not driving. I was not driving a Ferrari. I think I was driving this, this, this you know. Do you drive as fast as you talk? No. Okay. Uh, I was just wondering. So, but, but here's what's crazy. They tracked me down in Arlington, Virginia, nine months later, some through Hertz, which I rented the car, and some just directly. And I, and I paid like Hundred euros. It was. It was literally a thousand dollars. Are you going to slow down next summer? It was. You know, a lot of it wasn't, wasn't speed. You? No, no, it wasn't. That no, was me. Uh, it wasn't speed. Good. It was. It was. Um. It was like going through the like little um, roundabouts. Yeah, the little yeah. roundabouts and not yeah. or going in the area where you're not supposed to go with pedestrian only. Yeah. I mean, they haven't opened the cars. How's? I mean, I'm an American. You drive where you can drive. I mean, I'm from LA. I drive where I can drive. There's a road. I'm driving on it. Um, well, that explains yeah. the uh, uh, Interpol red notice they have on you now. <laughs> exactly. yeah. Well, there might be other reasons, too. Well, look, I want to ask, uh, thank each and every one of you for coming, and I ask all of you to join me in thanking our panel.